Those of us remaining here, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And our text this morning is found in that passage we read earlier from verse 4 through to verse 10. And our consideration for this morning is God's blueprint for the church. God's blueprint and plan for the church. What is a blueprint? A blueprint, really very simply, is a, is a drawing that shows a design. And it used to be that architects would do those designs and drawings uh, on special blue paper. Having never really done it myself, I'm not quite sure what was so special about the blue paper. Uh, but that's why we speak of a blueprint. It shows a design. Well, these verses in 1 Peter chapter 2 show to us God's design for his church. God is the architect of a great building. Coming back again here to London, I was uh, being reminded of the, the big buildings that are here as I was walking past Canary Wharf the other day and seeing those massive banks uh, stretching up into the sky. No doubt they took a lot of planning and a lot of building to, to put those up. Great buildings. Of course, going to central London, you see more great buildings. God is building a great building, far greater than even the tallest skyscraper on this earth. God is building a church. He's not building with materials, not little, literal bricks and mortar and cement. God is building with people. And he's building something that is bigger and better and more beautiful and longer lasting than anything that is in this world. Peter is writing in this letter to struggling Christians. They're persecuted, they're small Uh, They're troubled in many ways. And Peter wants to write to them, to exhort them and to encourage them. And one way that he does this is by reminding them that God has a plan for his church. And God's plan will prevail. God's blueprint will be built. God isn't just the architect of his church. He is also the builder. And he will ensure that his plan comes to fruition. And so then as we think about this design, this blueprint this morning, we'll do so under two headings. There are two ways that this this design is revealed to us. The first is by way of comparison, and the other is by way of contrast. And so let's firstly consider then the comparison here. Peter makes a comparison between Christ and his people. He begins, doesn't he, in verse 4 with Christ. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone. The the first stone of any building is the most important one, isn't it? You're laying a foundational stone. And the reason it's so important is because all the other stones that are going to be built around that first stone are going to be put in line with and all around that first stone. If the first stone is wrong, then all the other stones are going to be wrong as well. How important then that the first stone is right. And such it is then with Christ. He is the first stone, places the foundational stone of this building that God 
is erecting. And everything is going to be measured in line with Christ. And we as God's people then are like him and made to be like him. Notice with me a number of elements of this comparison. The first is that we share the same properties as Christ. Verse 4 again, he's described as a living stone. And then look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, he says, are being built up as a spiritual house. Christ is a living stone. Christ's people are living stones. We share the same properties, as it were. Again, if you're a builder of a building, it would be rather strange to start with a stone and then to use blocks of foam to build around it. You use the same material, don't you? And such it is here. God begins with a living stone and he continues with living stones. It seems a rather strange phrase, doesn't it? A living stone. It's what we might call an oxymoron. An oxymoron is two words that shouldn't be going together. Hot ice cream is an oxymoron. You don't get hot ice cream. Ice cream, by definition, is cold. So what then of a living stone? If I was to ask you, name me something that is dead and inanimate, probably one of the first things in your mind is going to be a stone. (laughs) Something that is completely uh, dead, inanimate. Well, what, what, what then is Peter getting at as he uses this strange description? Well, perhaps a couple of things, but one thing perhaps is this, that as a stone does have that, that as it were, that flavor of death, yet to being described as life and, uh, and alive, he's making reference in the first place to Christ. Christ died. He truly did die. He was dead. And to the world, he's dead. But we know that he's risen again. He's alive. And such it is for us as well. What are Christians? Christians are nothing. Christians are are, are worthless to the world. Dead, really. But to God, he knows that they're alive. There is a spiritual life within them, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. But perhaps further than that, what is the other element of a stone? A stone is something that lasts. And there's a a contrast that's being drawn between what Peter has earlier said about the lives of men. Read chapter 1 and verse 24. He quotes from Isaiah, All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Human lives are passing and fleeting. God's word stands. In contrast then, just as our lives are passing away, the life that Christ has is a life that is eternal and is lasting. And here then is the amazing thing. As believers, we share the same properties as Christ. As he has lasting life, so also do we. As he is risen from the dead to reign forevermore, so we share in that life. In fact, that's why we read, one of the reasons for reading from Isaiah 28 earlier on in in our service. It's quoted in verse 6 of this stone that God has laid. But we read those first verses in Isaiah 28, which speaks of of, of the fading flower of Ephraim, the drunkards. But their lives are just like a flower. It, It flourishes and then poof, it's gone. Instead, God has laid a stone in Zion, something that will last. And this then is is a great encouragement to these Christians. 
He wants them to know that just as Christ is established and living forever, so they also. You have to understand that Peter has already used this phrase living in a number of ways. He's spoken about living hope. He's spoken about living word. And now he talks about living stones. Peter is is concerned that these believers know about life and that they have it in Christ. And so here is the first way that God's people are like Christ. We're living stones. We share the same identity with him. Lasting life. And so in a sense, it doesn't matter what the world does or what the world says. We have everlasting life. We cannot die just like Christ. We share then the same properties as Christ. But notice also this. We share the same plot line as Christ. I wonder if you've ever watched a series of films or perhaps read a series of books where it's a very similar plot line that, that goes through that story. And you know when you come to the next installment that it's going to follow the same pattern. You know that there's going to be a murder and you know that the same characters are going to be involved and you know it's going to be the same hero who solves the mystery in the end or whatever the story is. Perhaps we get a bit tired. Well, in a very positive way, God's people share the same story as the Lord Jesus. What is that pattern? Well, we have it laid out for us again in verse 4, don't we? You come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Do you see the elements that are there? He's firstly a stone that's rejected by men. We see that again in verse 7, don't we? He is the stone that the builders have rejected. Who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you know the story... It was the Jewish people and indeed the the religious leaders of the day. They didn't want the Lord Jesus. They hated him. They were envious of him. And the Lord Jesus actually uses that very same verse, which is uh, verse 7 of, of 1 Peter 2 is quoting from Psalm 118. And Jesus takes that very same quotation and applies it to the religious leaders of his day. You can read of this in Matthew 21 and verse 42. Uh, Jesus has just given the parable of the tenants, the the wicked vine dressers. They're they're given responsibility to look after this vineyard. And the master sends uh, these servants to to obtain some of the produce. But they they just get rid of the servants, beat them up. And then he sends his son and they kill him. And Jesus knows who he's talking about. And those he's talking to know they're talking about him. He says, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And you read later verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was talking about them. They were the ones who were rejecting him. They hated him. And indeed they hated him so much that indeed they put him to death. And so Christ, though he's this living stone, he's rejected by men. And Peter, he's writing to rejected Christians. That's the flavor of the whole letter. You can read later on about how he speaks of the sufferings of Christ. And he says, Christ is an example to you. You're suffering as well. You're being rejected. But don't worry because you're following the story of Jesus. And the encouragement of this is not only are you rejected, but yes, the world hates you, but God has chosen you. That's the other next part, isn't it? This living stone is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, it's a, it's a stone that is chosen. 
And you can read later on, uh, verse 9, he says, you, speaking to the people, are a chosen race. Just as Christ is chosen, again it's laid out, isn't it, in the, the quotation from Isaiah 28, verse 6, I'm laying a stone of Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Just as God chose Christ, he also chooses us. The world hates you, the world has rejected you, but God knows you. Why was it that God had chosen the Lord Jesus? Well, it's because Christ was the only stone who could be the starting stone of this building. What are the qualifications to be a stone in God's building? The qualification is holiness. God wants to build a holy house. In other words, God is building a temple, a place for for holy worship. But who is holy to be the beginning of that building? Well, none of us, because we're all sinners. And that's why Christ was chosen. Again, you can read earlier in 1 Peter. He was a lamb, spotless and without blemish. He was pure in his life. There was no sin found within him. And thus, God chose him to be the first stone in his holy house. You see, here is the amazing thing. We also are chosen. But the choosing is different. Christ was chosen because of his inherent holiness. He is holy in and of himself. We are chosen in order that we might be made holy and in his likeness. That's why Christ is the first stone. And we're like stones that are, that are well out of place. And God takes us in his grace and he places us in line with Christ. He makes us holy in him. So it's righteousness that's not our own, but it's righteousness that is received by grace and by faith. Perfection that is found not in ourselves, but in Christ. And it was, we began our service, didn't we, by, by mentioning Solomon and the building of his temple and the praise that was brought to God at that time in 2 Chronicles. We read from the end of chapter 5. But Solomon gives a most interesting prayer in chapter 6 of two chronicles listen to what he says in this prayer he says blessed be the lord the god of israel who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to david my father saying since the day that i brought my people out of the land of egypt i chose no city out of all the tribes of israel in which to build a house that my name might be there and i chose no man as prince over my people israel but i have chosen jerusalem that my name may be there, and I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. Do you see the link that he's making there? God has chosen a king, David, is the illustration given there. And he's also chosen the place, the city, that God's temple might be there. And that's the context. They built this glorious new temple, and God's glory is being manifested there. So Christ, as it were, he's the king, he's the holy one, who's, who's the first stone. And it's because of his choosing that we are chosen also. And that we are enabled to be part of God's glorious plan. And the wonderful assurance of this then is that despite the hatred of the world, we are immovable as God's people. God has chosen. When God's chosen, that's it. That's the point, isn't it? Again, verse 6, God is laying us. Uh, in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious whoever believes in him will not be put to shame and it doesn't matter that the builders have rejected Christ is the cornerstone and if you're being built around him then you will be established like him too God's plan will prevail 
So we follow then the story of Christ, rejected, chosen, and further precious. Do you see that? This living stone, chosen by God and precious. And again, it's noted again in verse 6, he's a chosen cornerstone and precious, valuable in the sight of God. The Lord Jesus was God's own beloved son. And yes, the world despised him and rejected him, but God delighted in him and in the work that he did on the cross. And such it is for us as well. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you feel like you're rejected. Maybe you feel nobody loves you. Maybe you feel that you're undervalued. I'd have you know this. God loves you. God cares for you. You are precious in his sight if you are one of his children. And so do you see then how we share not only the same properties as Christ, his identity, but we share the same plot line, the same story as Christ. Our lives are being lived out in the the pattern of the Lord Jesus. What a blessing. What a privilege. And so no matter what we face in this world, we're chosen of God and we're beloved of him. But there's another element as well in in this comparison with the Lord Jesus. We share the same purpose as Christ. Christ is this foundation stone to God's grand design. Why is God building a building anyway? What is he doing? God's intention is that he might dwell among his people. He wants to share his glory and his goodness with them. That's what he's doing, as I mentioned. It's a spiritual house, he says in verse 5. A temple. That was the point of the Old Testament temple. It was meant to be an illustration of God being among his people. But now here we are in the New Testament age and the local church is the expression of that. I don't know if you realize, but as you come here this morning, you're coming into the temple of God. You're meeting with his people. We are living stones and God is here among us. That's a great reason, isn't it, to gather with God's people. Do we want to miss out on God being among his children But of course, there's future fulfillment to this, isn't there? This is a work that's ongoing. Peter says this, doesn't he? You are being built up a spiritual house. There are still living stones that are being added to this building. One day, the last stone will be put in place. Don't know who that will be, but there will be one person who will be the last person to be converted. That person will be the last one To be put as part of God's building of his church. Then will come the end. Jesus will come again. All his elect and chosen ones will be gathered in. What a glorious day that will be for his people. And of course until that day we're longing aren't we? We want more living stones to be added. And that's part of the reason why God wants us to be here. That's part of the reason for the preaching of the word. God wants more stones to be added. Clearly Christ hasn't finished his work. Because otherwise all the stones would be added and Christ would have returned. He won't come again until every last living stone from this area of poplar are brought into his kingdom. And then what a glorious future we look forward to. We read of it, don't we, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3. Um, well, it would be lovely to read the whole passage, but you can read about how this holy city, is, Jerusalem, is coming out of heaven. This, um, the, the, the people of God, like a bride... Then there's this voice that's heard. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That 
That's the prospect. That's the purpose that God has for his people. He wants to dwell among us. But that's the purpose on God's side. But he has a purpose for us as being the people among whom he dwells. He wants us to be those who praise him and those who serve him. Peter doesn't mind mixing his metaphors. I wonder if you notice that in verse 5. He says, doesn't he, you're like living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house, this temple so that God can dwell in you and among you. Then he says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He changes his analogy. Not only are you the building, but you're also the priesthood serving in the building. Offering sacrifices. Again, that's what the priests did in, in the Old Testament. They bring animals and, 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 and offer to God these sacrifices uh, to worship him. Now this perhaps rings a bell, doesn't it, with us. Who, who, who is the great high priest? Isn't it the Lord Jesus Christ? You can read in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the priest and he's the one who's offered himself up as a sacrifice. And you see then we are being compared to Christ. Just as Christ is one who brings glory to God, so his people are to be those, as he dwells among them, who bring glory and praise to God. We are to be like priests. Or what are we to bring as these spiritual sacrifices? Well, Peter explains a bit more in, in verse 9, doesn't he? He says, you're a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This again is the great hope and the great intention that God has. He wants a praising people. And that's a good measure of whether you're a Christian or not. Let me ask you this question this morning. Do you want to praise God? Is that a concern in your life? Are you concerned to bring glory to God with your words and with your deeds and even with your thoughts? Are you concerned to be among God's people and to together be worshipping the Lord? It's true, isn't it, of any company or organization. There are always aims, aren't there, and goals that need to be reached. Maybe it's good customer service. Maybe it's brand recognition. Maybe it's to maximize the profit margins. Whatever it is, there are going to be certain goals that the company has and you need to fit your life in around those goals. Otherwise, you're going to be fired because you're not helping the business. And it's the owners and the boss who sets those aims and goals. Who is the one who is the architect and builder of the church? It's God. God is the one who sets the goals and aims for what the church is all about. And he explicitly says in his word, it's all about his glory. It's all about him. And he wants to be praised. Peter knows this. He begins his letter in this way. Verse 3 of 1 Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he launches into describing the glorious salvation we have and the wonderful hope we have as believers. And he uses that to, to praise God. He knows that that's what God principally desires. And the more that we're like Christ, as we've been thinking, we are like the Lord Jesus. The more we're like the Lord Jesus, and the more we're concerned for the glory of God, the more thus we are able to bring him praise. And so then, there's, as it were, there's two elements to this, isn't there? There's the element of exhortation. We need to seek to be more like the Lord Jesus so that we bring glory to God. 
But there's also the assurance, isn't there, that God is going to do this regardless. <laughs> Even though our praise and our worship is often very weak and we feel that our spiritual sacrifices are rather meager as we come to the Lord. Yet God will accomplish his plans. He will make us like Christ. Though we struggle, though, we, though we're frail and weak, he's making us like Jesus. And he will make us suitable to bring him glory in eternity to come. Isn't that wonderful? We share the same properties, the same plot line, and the same purpose as Jesus Christ. What else could you want in your life? And if you don't know Jesus, what is your life all about? Do you not want to be like him? Do you not want to be part of God's plan and purpose? And that leads us on then to this second part, which is the contrast. Because indeed, there's another element to this design. It is a comparison showing the differences between those who believe in Christ and are being part of that building and those who do not believe and are not part of God's plan. And let me tell you this this morning, there is no more fundamental question in life than do you have faith in Jesus Christ? There is no more important question than that. And we see it brought out for us in these verses. Uh, Peter, first of all, uh, speaks to us, doesn't he, about those who do not believe. He speaks about unbelievers, What is the characteristic of unbelievers? It is that they reject Christ. We see that in verse 7. He says, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And he says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Again, verse 7 is quoting from Psalm 118. And it speaks of builders rejecting a stone. But perhaps part of the problem is this. Not so much in the first place that they reject the stone. The problem is that they are builders. I wonder if you noticed that. Who is it that's building the church again? Isn't it God? It's his church. And yet these are described as builders. They're trying to build something different from God's blueprint. And that was the way, wasn't it, with those who rejected Christ when he was on this earth and and put him on the cross, the the religious leaders of the time. They had their own plan and ideas about what God's kingdom was all about. It was all about merit. You've got to follow these rules and God will be happy with you and then God will fit you into his kingdom. What they didn't understand was that wasn't God's plan at all. God's plan is free grace. Come to Christ. But they didn't understand that. And so that's why they rejected Christ. They had their own ideas about what God's kingdom was. They had their own plans. And they were not God's plans. And so they are confounded. Because the stone that they've rejected, they've decided that's not God's plan, actually becomes the stone that is the stone upon which God is building his his blueprint. And so it is to their endless frustration. They're, They're offended at Jesus. But what can they do? They can't move him. God's put him there. He's the foundation stone. And we saw it to be so, didn't we? Christ died, and now he's risen again. What could they do? They couldn't couldn't put him back in the tomb. And he has life forevermore. So God has proved then to be the builder. That was interesting in this further quotation. Peter loves using the Old Testament. And again in verse 8, he quotes again from Isaiah, this time chapter 8. It's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And if you look at the context of that passage, the stone is very clearly God himself. It is the Lord who is the stone. 
So we're reminded of, of the deity of Christ. Christ is no mere man. That's why he can be the foundation stone. That's why the whole building can rest on him. Because he is God himself. And so therefore God's plan cannot fail. And those who stand in the way of God's plan are going to fall. We're told they're appointed to it, aren't we? They're destined to do this. Those who reject Christ are part of the decree of God. He knows those who will disobey him. There are some who struggle with that. And they say, well, doesn't that make God responsible for uh, their death? Oh, no, not at all. There is a path we're clearly told here that, that they've chosen themselves in disobedience to God's explicit word. God leaves them in their sin. If they are going to refuse to accept his purposes, God is not going to change the architecture of his church to fit them in. God's not going to say, well, most of you can believe in Jesus and be part of my kingdom. But you've got some of you over here and you're just trying to, trying to do it by your own efforts. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll just sort of adjust my plan a little bit and I'll squeeze you in. God's not going to do that. His plan is set. And if you're not part of that plan, you're outside. And you will stumble and fall. So let me ask you this morning again another question. Are you building or are you being built? Do you have your own plan or are you part of a plan? Are you building on sand or on a rock, to change the analogy? Are we allowing God to take our lives and to build them around the Lord Jesus? Have we trusted truly in him or are we working against him? Maybe you've got your own plans for your life. You've got your own blueprint. You know where you're going. You know the career path you're following. You know the, the, the kinds of things you want to be involved in. You know the kinds of things you want to be in your life. You've got your own ideas. You don't need God's word. You don't need Jesus in there. What are you doing? You're working against him. You're setting your own foundation. And God tells you it will come crumbling down when the storm of his judgment comes. It's only those who have built by God, on Christ, who are going to last. And this is a challenge for us as believers as well. And it's sobering because, because these verses are particularly relevant for professors. Who, who, who were the ones who rejected Christ? The religious leaders. They thought they knew, but they didn't. We need to challenge ourselves, don't we? We always want to align ourselves with God's plan. We don't want to be building our own church, do we? We're building God's church. Are we choosing our own stones? <laughs> Peter could have done that, couldn't he? Remember what the name Peter means? It means rock. It means stone. <laughs> and Peter could have said, I'm the stone. God's building the church on me. He could have written that, couldn't he? I mean, Jesus had said, hadn't he? You're on this rock. Your name is Peter. On this rock, I'll build the church. The only way in which it's true about Peter was that as he proclaimed Christ, <laughs> the church was being built. Christ is the true cornerstone. That's what Peter the Rock is saying. He doesn't point to himself. He points to Jesus. And ever we must, as God's people, do that. And then God's plan will prevail. So the unbelievers, they will fall, they will fail. But what then about believers? What's characteristic of them? Well, such wonderful things are described here, aren't they? And we have not time to look at them in full. But let me sort of summarize them for you. Verses 9 to 10. 
He describes God's people, not being outside of God's plan, but being part of it and the beauty of that. He speaks of them as the true Israel. He says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. They're all terms that were used of God's people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And he says you are the true Israel. You are God's chosen ones. And this is amazing because he's, he's writing to people who are mostly Gentiles. They're not actually Jews. And Peter is saying then the physical people of Israel in the Old Testament and all the, the ceremonies that were, were part of that period. It's picture language of the true people of God who are a spiritual people who know God in their hearts. God's plan is a mixed multitude of believers. That is the ultimate temple. You know, there are some Christians who, who get very caught up in, in a, you know, the, a, a new temple is going to be built and uh, sacrifices are going to be reinstated in the literal Jerusalem. Well, I think they're mistaken. Peter very clearly here sees these things as symbolic of what God is doing now in his people. We are the temple of God. We are the priesthood. And God's purpose then for us being this special people is, as we've already mentioned, to bring praise to him. And we have endless supplies of fuel to praise God. Because look at what descriptions are made. He says, doesn't he, that we have been brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. We once weren't a people, but now we are his people. Once we'd not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We are not only the true Israel, but we're a transformed people. So we want to praise and glorify God. Reminds me of that hymn. Maybe the most famous hymn ever written, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, should we not praise God for his election? And praise God for his effectual call in our lives. And praise God that we can say, once, once I was in darkness, but now I'm in light. Once I did not know God and I was far from him, but no longer because I know him. Once I didn't know what God's mercy was, but no longer because I know God's mercy in my life. I'm not the person I was. I'm different. I'm transformed. My heart is made new. And I love the Lord because he has loved me first. And so I will give my life to praise and worship him. Is that your heart? Who we are and what God has done for us. We're never going to run out, are we, of, of reasons to praise God. There's not going to come some point in eternity future and, and our praise will sort of peter out and we'll go, oh, well, I'm, I'm not sure what we'll thank God for now. There's ever going to be a, a, a reason for us to glorify his name because Christ is infinite reason. How glorious and wonderful is God's plan. This then is God's blueprint. He wants a praising people among whom he can dwell. If you're still outside of that plan this morning, today is a day of opportunity for you. Leave the little shack you're trying to build yourself. Be part of the glorious building that God is creating. Receive the gift of holiness that is in Christ. And know his love in your life. Know his transforming grace. And if I speak to you this morning, you're part of the true Israel. Let us ever more recognize that Christ is the foundation of the church. 
We don't seek our own glory. We don't pursue our own aims. We just desire that we would be placed more in line with the Lord Jesus. That we would rest our lives fully upon him. And that we, as being made more like him, are able to bring more glory to the name of God. And here then is the final encouragement for you, dear brothers and sisters. We are not ultimately building God's kingdom. God is building God's kingdom. And as Christ says, he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, may the Lord bless his word to our hearts. And we'll close by singing number 568, which is a hymn very much based on this passage.